0: My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to let you know about the Material Design Awards, which are now open for submissions. There are four award categories this year. The first is theming, this is for projects that follow material theming guidelines. The second is innovation, this is for projects that creatively expand on material. The third category is universality, so think inclusive and accessible projects. And the final category is experience, and these are for projects with superb interaction and navigation. To see examples of past winners, check out the links in the show notes to the Material Design Awards archives from 2018, 2017, and 2016. Apply today before submissions close on August 24th, 2019. Just go to materialdesignawards2019.glitch.me. Now, I know that's a long URL, so we'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. Now for this week's interview, we're talking with Jalene McPherson, a current MLA candidate at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and one of the conference organizers for the 2019 Black and Design Conference. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: My name is Jalene McPherson. I'm a current second year graduate student at Harvard's Graduate School of Design studying landscape architecture.
0: So tell us about the Harvard Graduate School. I don't know if people really knew that Harvard had a graduate school for design.
1: Yeah, and that was something I kind of didn't know until I was looking at graduate schools. So the graduate school design is kind of like this large school that has multiple concentrations, such as architecture, landscape architecture, urban planning, master's of design studies, and as well as many PhD programs. So the school size right now is around 800 students. So it's pretty large for design school. When I, I studied architecture as an undergrad, but only did a four-year degree program. And so I'd known a little bit about the design school, mainly from architecture, but it's an amazing community. for people all in one building, kind of studying all these different areas of design.
0: And you said you're studying landscape architecture. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: What appeals to you about landscape architecture?
1: Yeah, no, I think something that appeals to me about landscape architecture is really the broad range of possibilities that come with it. So I guess you could say architectures focus primarily on the building and landscape is everything outside of that. (laughs) And so that encompasses a lot of different types of spaces and a lot of different scales of space. So I'm really interested in more of the social aspect or like, public spaces within the urban city. That's kind of what drew me to study landscape. In my undergrad, I was always focused on like thinking about the community of people that lived around public spaces or in buildings that we were designing for. And I always was really interested in thinking about, okay, how do people move throughout space or where do they interact and kind of like what are big places or opportunities to engage communities more and give them access to green space, clean air, and other opportunities for, like, socialization.
0: Yeah, I think when most people think about landscape architecture, they're thinking mostly, you know, about green space, you know, parks, uh, uh, things of that nature. I know here in Atlanta, there's, we have so many little just, Pocket parks in a way like little parks just kind of tucked in here and there. I I think right now there's a proposal to build sort of part of a park over our highway over one of the highways. Yeah, but what are some of the other sorts of things that make up landscape architecture aside from that?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. So I think it's easiest to describe people like, oh, you know, like park design, but there are actually a lot of different other types of public spaces, Um, plazas. One of the most famous places that a lot of people recognize is like the High Line. So also thinking about post-industrial uses of spaces. There are also a lot of power and landscape where we can, we have a lot of control over sustainability so we can impact the environment in a positive way. There are a lot of initiatives happening right now in New York to kind of protect the city. Against sea level rise. So, there are a lot of constructions happening along the coast, and we're seeing that development happen. So, there's a wide scale to thinking about design, both on a regional scale, but also there's smaller, like hardscape plans and thinking about outdoor malls or plazas, and transportation kind of gets looped into that as well.
0: How does transportation get looped into that?
1: Yeah, I guess that was a big statement. <laughs> um, no, but I think now that people are kind of thinking about the future of like driverless cars, um, now we're thinking about how we can retake over the street for pedestrians, or like maybe we won't need as many spaces for cars. So I think there's a lot of pedestrian centered ideas about reconfiguring street spaces, or like, okay, what happens if we take away highways from? you know, communities. Can we transform those spaces into other types of recreational use or ecological use? So I think two, bike paths are really big in thinking about circulation. So how do people move throughout spaces that can be both through cars, um, through highways, through airplanes, but also at the ground level of like walking or biking throughout space. So those are factors. I think that a lot of designers try to influence into their designs, but also could be it's like the High Line is a completely new way of like kind of moving throughout New York City.
0: So really, you're you're kind of like you have the opportunity to design on a bunch of different types of scales. It sounds yeah, like. you can do something really small like a plaza or yeah, oh, I'm saying a park, but even a park can range in size from really small to like Central Park or something like that.
1: Yeah, it's funny you said plaza too because. Um, I guess for our first semester of design school we had to design like from the small scale so like a courtyard and it was like this teeny like enclosed space but it was really fun of what we could come up with and there were so many different ideas and it was kind of our first project and then we ramped up in scale and like thinking about Boston City Hall Plaza and that was like seven and a half acres, and Thinking about okay, like this is a hardscape space. Like we weren't allowed to use like lawns or anything like that. Like it's completely like thinking about people moving freely, and they it had to be accessible to Boston's like governmental building. And then our final design was ramped up in scale again, and it was thinking about like waterfront design and interaction between the city and also like recreational space. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's definitely a wide range of scales that you can design and everything in
0: between i'm glad you mentioned um accessibility Mm -hmm. that's been something that's been on my mind lately yeah Uh, mostly in the web space i mean i'll bring Mm -hmm. i'll bring this back to landscape architecture so just just walk with me here Uh, but i i was reading this article this morning about how uh domino's pizza is trying to like take a case all the way to, to the supreme court because a customer is suing them because their website's not accessible. Like they're not able to like access it on a screen reader. And there has been other types of lawsuits that are like this. I think there Mm -hmm. were people that were trying to sue Beyonce because her website was not accessible. And granted, the web guidelines around accessibility normally tend to pertain to government sites in terms of enforceability. Mm -hmm. Beyonce's site is not a government site. Neither is Domino's Pizza. However, what I found just in the web industry is that accessibility is kind of a it's a slippery scale. Some people really adhere to it. Others don't care about it at all. But when it comes to landscape architecture, accessibility is super important because all types of people have to move throughout spaces yeah how do you design for physical accessibility
1: yeah no that's a good question and i think it varies in the designer or what you're trying to achieve and some people are very much like oh we don't want this space to be accessed by like masses amounts of people like it could be very dangerous or you know it could um, Post threats on large gatherings but I think too like the more practical answer is like oh well, like in designing public spaces there are laws and codes um, like ADA accessibility laws that you have to abide for but it's also like okay now you can accept those code standards or like how do you truly make a space open and then it raises more questions about like who is allowed in what spaces and who isn't. So that got really interesting. And especially in terms of the plaza and how do you make a space feel comfortable for maybe a single person who's walking there or in their wheelchair. And then also can the space accommodate like large gatherings or protests? Like does pu- the public have a right, you know, to gather and protest and speak In kind of connect in large groups. I don't know if that answers your question, but...
0: (laughs) No, that that answers my question. It also made me think a little bit about sort of this concept that I've heard of with defensive design, where sometimes Mm. certain public spaces, like you say, are designed to keep people out. Yeah, Like, for example, park benches that may have a middle railing so no one can lay across them, or... Um, Mm -hmm. maybe low to the ground surfaces. So they'll put like little bumps or spikes on them. So no one can sit comfortably on it. Yeah. That sort of reminded me of that.
1: That definitely comes up a lot in design too. And it's like, then it gets extremely political all of a sudden, like, you're like, okay, I'm just want to design like this nice space that maybe people could have like a lunch break on. But then I think too, in the era of like public safety and security, people get really like nervous about, okay, like, who's sitting and lingering in these Mm -hmm. spaces, and yeah, it's a fine line, but I think it's also kind of exciting, (laughs) because you're giving a space where you would not, you don't necessarily know what will happen, like, in a park, in Prospect Park in Brooklyn, it's, like, a wonderful space, because when I go there, I see people biking, doing Tai Chi, doing yoga with their dogs, and, like, there's not a set, like, programmed area for that to happen, it kind of just is able to happen, and there are like political statements that also happen there. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an exciting platform to be able to design kind of within that.
0: Yeah. One thing uh, when you, when you sort of talk about spaces like this, I'm thinking of how a few years ago, there were a lot of public protests in the streets where Mm -hmm. people were blocking highways and, and blocking major, you know, thoroughfares and things like that. And I know like here in Atlanta, for example, there was a big complaint that people could walk down onto the highway yeah they're like oh why is that why is that possible which almost (laughs) like doesn't make sense like why wouldn't they you can drive down there why couldn't you walk down there but no it's interesting about the the sort of governance of different spaces for different types of people or even different just modes of transportation and things like that there's more that i want to sort of dive into with that topic but i want to sort of take it back a little bit. I'm, I'm really curious to know about more about you and how you came to be studying at Harvard, talking about all this stuff. So where did you, you grow up?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I was born in New Jersey, but I grew up my whole life in Southwest Virginia, a little town called Roanoke, if anybody knows it. And I'm the youngest of three girls. And so my mom, she's a New Yorker. My dad was from Chicago. They're both from the big city. And then When they had me, they decided they wanted to move down south and kind of slow things down. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in Roanoke most of my life. I went to school with a lot of my friends, like kindergarten through high school and even some in college. I think it was a good community where everyone was really well connected and everyone knew each other. And so growing up in a place like that was really unique as I'm learning and then I went off to school to study architecture at the University of Virginia and I think how I got there was like not a linear path at all <laughs> for anybody listening who's like mm. oh how did you have it figured out
0: yeah I was curious like has design been like a big part of your like childhood growing up were you surrounded by it
1: yeah I think in a one sense I was surrounded by it and I didn't really realize that until later and now, like looking back, I was like, "Oh, um, my parents did a good job at like teaching me how to do this or that." And so, my dad did many things. He also briefly worked in furniture procurement, and then my mom went to fashion school for a little bit, and then decided that wasn't for her. But they and my grandma, my mom's side, like always painted and drew. And so, my parents were good at like exposing me to the arts very early. But I didn't realize that there were possible careers through design until high school Mm. and yeah so I kind of was always interested in drawing and painting but it was kind of like something I did just for fun and then I thought I wanted to be a doctor (laughs) I thought that was like what I was going to do and I very quickly realized like I don't like hospitals I'm very scared of blood (laughs) and bodily fluids (laughs) and so then I was like, oh, my goodness, like, what am I going to do? I think I was like 14. I was like, man, I just don't know what I'm going to study. And then my dad actually said, what about architecture? And then at that time, I had no idea what that field was. And I was like, what is this? And um, in high school, I got to go to a couple of design camps at um, Virginia Tech University, what was the other school? I went to another school, North Carolina State University. And they had like these summer design programs that my dad found. And he's like, oh, you should go and then you can kind of test and see if you liked it. And so at first, it was just such a different way of thinking. And I was not really excited about it. Um, but then I went on to study it in college. And it was very hard at first, <laughs> as I'm sure a lot of people feel when they first started architecture but um no it turned out to be really amazing
0: <laughs> yeah from people who we've had on the show we've had a couple of, of architects on before and they have always talked about i mean the difficulty of i think just of course learning about the subject matter but also a lot of those spaces are not super diverse mm-hmm. and so if you're coming in there as quote unquote the other yeah and that sort of just adds an element to the difficulty of, of studying and being in a space like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So no one in my immediate family or anyone I knew of really studied architecture. And so that was a whole new learning environment for me. I went to school and a lot of people, their parents had studied architecture, or like their uncle. And so they were kind of already looped in the field. And yeah, it was very hard to understand the language. Um just even what architecture was. um, And it was a difficult amount of learning that you have to do up front, like learning the software, but also a lot of technical skills that you need to acquire.
0: But overall, though, what was your time like at uh, University of Virginia? Yeah, I think
1: overall, it was really great. Because then my first year, they kind of restarted, I think it's my first year, right before I got there, they restarted their NOMAS chapter. So NOMAS is a national organization for minority architecture students. And for me, I struggled at first to really find a community of people maybe that looked like me or had the same interests as me. But then I met some people through student group and they have national conferences that we got to attend to. And then seeing just like all these other students who were going through similar feelings of exclusion, maybe, or being like, I'm not sure how I fit into this larger field was really great. And then my last two years at UVA, I ended up being the president of the NOMIS chapter. And then it was great to like connect to different professionals within the field. And I think they do a really great job at showcasing like how you actually get licensed. And like that was something I didn't even know. Like, OK, after school... You actually have to get licensed, and that's a whole process in itself. Um, So no, it was great. It was it was tough at first, undergrad, but then I ended up really enjoying
0: it. Nice. So I want to talk about, of course, uh, what you're doing right now at Harvard. Aside from education, you're one of the planners for the upcoming Black and Design Conference. Now, for those who are listening who might not be familiar with it, can you talk a little bit just about what the conference is?
1: Sure, definitely. So. The Black and Design Conference was started in 2015 by the African-American Student Union at Harvard. Um, and it was really, I guess, in response to a couple of different feelings that were going on in the school. And in one sense, it was to very much carve out this space where people could have discussions about different topics in design or like how diversity fits it within the design field. I think it was also a response to including and recognizing professionals of a unique and more black background. Like maybe they were recognized more like minority architects and also designers within the field. Harvard does a great job at putting together a public program every year and getting guest lectures. But I think at the time the school was, there was felt like a really big gap in how diverse those people were that were coming to Harvard. And so I think it's a really great response and and ended up being a really successful way to bring people together to hear these speakers, but also provide a space for collaboration, both among students and professionals. So yeah, this will be the third conference. The second conference took place in 2017, and it's gotten a wonderful response, both from attendees or current students. Um, and the administration at the GSD have been really excited about the conference. I think in 2017, it sold out. And so that was incredible to sell out like 500 tickets. And everyone just gets really excited about it and talks about how there is this unique opportunity where the design school is filled to the brim of black and brown bodies. And that's like a rare occasion, especially within the design field and The fact that this conference is able to reach so many different types of people and kind of be an example of how communities can come together in their struggles, recognize different contributions to the field. And from what I hear, everyone has like such a positive experience. So yeah, that's, I think that's the conference in a nutshell.
0: (laughs) Yeah. For people that have been listening to this show Mm -hmm. for any, I won't say for any length of time, but certainly if you've been if people have been listening since 2015, I have talked at length about how wonderful this conference is. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from the the reasons that you just mentioned, it was also just very affirming. Yeah. So when I first heard how I, I'm trying to think, how did I first hear about the conference? I don't recall. I want to say maybe a past guest told me or something like that. So I went to the one in 2015 and 2017. But when I first heard about it, I remember telling like other black designers that I know, like, yeah, we should go to this like black and design conference at Harvard. And a lot of people at first glance sort of turned their nose up at it. Like, like what it's a it's at Harvard. Why? Like, what is, what is that about? And so I'm mentioning the conference and everything and people are checking out the website and a lot of people initially did not want to go mm-hmm. because They were like, well, I don't know what it's going to be about. And are they talking about Photoshop or something like that? You know, like they're thinking it was more along the lines of sort of digital design. You know, they thought it would be something maybe comparable to like, I don't know, like an AIGA conference or Mm -hmm. how design live or something like that. And I'm telling people we need to go one because it's the first year that they're having this event and we need to support it. And two, how many black and design conferences have you been to in your career? <laughs> Probably yeah. none. Like let's like let's go. The tickets I think back then were like 50 bucks or something. Like the tickets are cheap. Let's just go. Like, let's go and just check it out. And then if we go and we don't like it, then at least, you know, we are in Boston. We can do other stuff. But <laughs> a lot of people I know at, at first really did not want to go to that first conference because they didn't know what it was going to be about. They'll say, oh, I'll go next year or something yeah. like that. Um, And so I went to the conference. Yeah, I went to the conference in 2015. And it was it was fantastic because not only about the things that were uh, discussed, I remember the theme in 2015 was about scale Mm -hmm. it was mostly about like equitable spaces and they went similar to what you're talking about with landscape architecture they went in magnitude from smaller spaces to larger spaces so they started with um the building and then they went to the neighborhood then the city then the region and so they had like different panels that would come on and talk about that and then i think on the next day of the conference they had a keynote uh Interview with Daryl Crooks, who at the time was the creative director at The Atlantic, and Phil Freelon, rest in peace, uh, who was one of the main architects for the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. And I mean, it was just so affirming to be in a space where we're learning about this sort of stuff. I'm meeting other black designers. I mean, there was there was singing, there was like soul yoga, like there were so many different things. It just made you feel affirmed not just as a designer, but like also like as a black person, Mm -hmm. like I feel culturally affirmed because sometimes we can go to these design events and there's not a lot of us there. It's, or you, you'll see someone else and you'll try to speak to them, but they may not want to speak to you because of whatever weird antagonistic reason. Mm -hmm. So it was just good to go into a space and it's, it just kind of felt like family in a way.
1: Yeah. And that's something I'm glad you said that. That's like, so incredible to hear but it's something a lot of people say like I just felt like these people were my family even though it was just for one weekend or like a little bit of time I immediately felt recognized in my contributions and I think from a student perspective like maybe the negative interactions or experiences that we have in the design field is it is already a very intense program Mm -hmm. and oftentimes you're one or two of the black people in the room. And I think too, like everyone was just saying like, okay, like there's not a lot of people here and, you know, Harvard prides itself as being the number one, you know, design school. So I think as a number one design school, they should be progressive, the forerunners and kind of celebrate diversity and have the black and design conference. It's unique. To any other design schools. And I mean, I hopefully, like I know a lot of students from other schools come and they're able to interact, but I don't know of any other school that's doing this. And so that was also too a big draw for me when I was looking at graduate programs. There's so many different ones, like how do you choose a good school for you or a place where you feel like, okay, maybe I could belong here. And when I was applying in 2017, the conference was happening and I wasn't able to go, but they uploaded a lot of the videos online and it was just so amazing mm-hmm. to see. You could feel the energy like through, <laughs> I was on my computer, like, like staring into the screen and like, oh my gosh, like, this is so amazing. <laughs> I want to go there. And I knew it was just a conference, but still like to be a part of a community where people want to celebrate and help support crazy ideas like, hey, let's have a conference called Black and Design and have the school support us and professionals support us and come together and make it happen on top of being a full-time graduate student. I was like, these people are probably crazy, but I love it. Like, I want to be involved with that. <laughs> and, uh, and it's always amazing to hear stories or just hear current professionals who are like, oh yeah, we met in the 2015 conference and we kind of started our own program and you make a whole new connection from those pieces. And I think that's really integral to having a professional degree program. It's yeah. not just about learning like, okay, this is how you design. But I think we also we're feeling like, okay, we feel isolated in this space or maybe we don't feel like we're able to be that great. You know, we don't see that many examples of architects that look like us, but being in a room full to the brim of so many diverse people that are in the same boat or in different fields of design, I think is really re energizing and what I'm looking forward to in October. So yeah, it's very exciting to say the
0: least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. So yeah, the the conference takes place October when?
1: Okay. So it's taking place October 4th through 6th, um, the first weekend in October. sixth. Yeah.
0: Nice. And I know that the theme for this year is, is a little, different. 2015, I I talked about the theme was about scale. Um, In 2017, the theme was about uh, designing resistance and building coalitions. Yes. What is what is this year's theme? And why did you all choose that?
1: Yeah, so this year's theme was really in reference to the past two conferences. It's called Black Futurism, creating a more equitable future. And I think We really had this initial feeling of, so the 2017 conference, to elaborate a little bit, was in response to, I think a lot of people felt defeated within like the current political tension at the time that still exists today. And we Mm -hmm. really wanted to unite as a community or showcase like social activism and how designers were being advocates for their own community. And so that was a great response. And two, this year's theme kind of fit in like other around other colloquiums or events that were taking place around Harvard. So there was a lot about social justice and designing as social justice. And so We were thinking, okay, what's next then? Like, we had a conference on these two amazing topics. Like, how do we build from that? And so Daisha and myself were the two kind of co-chairs. We met and we were like, hey, what about Black Futurism? And we both had this idea and we were like, oh my gosh, I was thinking the same thing. But I think in lines with that, we were really thinking about, okay... How do we then, as a group of people, design our communities to be more equitable for the future? How do we sustain ourselves as a culture? and I think too, it kind of references being a student, you often see like a lot of the struggle and strifes that go in within the black community or it feels you can feel very defeated at times. so we really wanted to, f- Uplift others and show that we're still here, even through all the systems of oppression. Or you feel like a lot is rooting against you. That even in those hard situations, that we're still prevailing. We're still creating beautiful things. We're creating beautiful communities. But also looking forward, how do we envision those to take place? I think also, of course, Black Panther was like such a huge movie, Mm -hmm. and not just. The graphics of it, but the emotional response that movie was able to contribute and reach a wide range of people, not just the Black community. And it kind of was the first example of how people were envisioning Africa, the continent, kind of separate from its colonial lens that it's often referenced to. And I think that liberation for us was something That allowed this new creative film to be created. And people to totally stretch their imaginations. Hannah Bleeker gave a lecture at the GSD last fall. And that was kind of received really well, of course. (laughs) And it was super (laughs) exciting. And it was just so empowering to see that. To see not only minorities. Okay, like yes, we're competing. Even if we feel like we're the underdogs. But we're also excellent we're also thriving like we're also creating these spaces that we haven't even seen before and then now with technology moving it's quicker than ever like we're having this new kind of lens and opportunities to create spaces and they're much different from the counterparts something that hannah said at the lecture that stuck with me was if you look at other futuristic or sci-fi movies you rarely see people of color in those kinds of films and so mm-hmm. You know, she was kind of hinting at there were no black people in the future, like in Star Trek, you know, in certain movies, there's not a lot of diversity. And so yeah, this movie was really saying, no, we do exist in the future. And this is how. And I think that for me was super empowering to see and a part of what we want to capture in this theme. So I think ideas of liberation. Away from systems of oppression and kind of moving from our past into the future are kind of things that we want to hint at. But also looking at technology and design. So we'll have a different couple of topics that we'll discuss within that larger umbrella of Black futurism.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask like, what can we expect from this year's event? But I know it's it's coming up soon. I don't know how much of it you can kind (laughs) of like tease out to the audience or anything.
1: Yeah, I can definitely tease a little bit. So we're going to follow, like, I guess in terms of conference structure, there will be a lot of amazing panels, some of the panels that we're thinking about, including deal with technology and design, but also identity in the Black experience and how that is kind of being translated into design. I'm trying to think what else I can say without giving away everything. Also, I think a new initiative or kind of experience that we're really hoping to connect is to create more of a networking event within from students and professionals, but also another initiative that the GSD has put on is the African-American Design Nexus. And so...
0: Oh, is that with uh, the Loeb Library?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so that now has been kind of created and that will be, I don't want to overstate on their part, but I think we're going to be doing some collaboration with them. And it's kind of the start showcasing how students of color or other students can access other designers who've come before us. I think I said in a few times, like it feels like very slim when you look at how many black architects there are. And so this will be, they'll kind of have an exhibition and showcasing like other black designers. Um, So it should be really exciting. I'm excited for it.
0: Nice. I'm I'm really interested to hear more about the, uh, the African-American design nexus. I heard about it a little bit mm-hmm. when I was there in 2017 and I was trying to reach out just to kind of get some more information about it and everything. But uh, I'm glad there's going to be some type of networking sort of portion to it because the two years that mm-hmm. I went, particularly the first year, I mean, I met so many people in different disciplines that I mean, one that I had never even known existed, but also that have helped even kind of elevate sort of what revision path was. You know, I told Mm -hmm. the story um, before we started recording, but um, in 2015, that's where I first met some of the curators from the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. You know, this was the year uh, before it opened. So a lot of the conversation around space, uh, there was talk about the new museum and everything like that. And one of the curators that I met there, uh, Michelle Joan Wilkinson, I mean, we kept in touch over the years. And now just recently, they've acquired some of Revision Paths episodes to be a part of the museum. It's the first podcast that's ever been admitted into the museum. So it's that I don't think that ever would have happened if I wouldn't have went to Black and Design and been able to network and meet people like that. Like it's. It's crazy how great that event is.
1: Yeah, no, that's so incredible to hear. And it's so exciting that, yeah, there's always like the breadth of people who have told similar stories or totally different stories. Like I'm just so excited to connect to all the different people who have attended the conference in the past and hopefully new people who have been curious about it. But yeah, I'm also glad you mentioned the African-American Smithsonian as well. And so with the passing of Free Phil Freelon, that is also something that, you know, we want to recognize in this year's conference and also provide a space, you know, to pay tribute to those who have come before us and that have passed Mm -hmm. away, but also have made amazing contributions to the field. So we're really honored to have that kind of space where people can connect from all different walks of life, but also to kind of solidify and like come together since, and Phil was actually at the first, uh, in the 2015 conference, like you mentioned. So yeah. we feel really special to have had that opportunity and time with him.
0: Nice. First of all, I just want to thank you for your role in helping to continue the conference for people that are listening. You can tell that the conference sort of happens every other year. Yeah. So, like the committee changes that plans it every year. So I can only imagine the challenge that comes with having to sort of pick up the baton from the previous two years and then turn the conference into something new and different, but yet still keep the same spirit of the event.
1: Yeah, no, that has definitely been a challenge, but I'm we're also very lucky to be the third conference. There were a lot of trials and errors and of what happened in 2015 and 2017, but also what has been so amazing is having the past conference leaders kind of recognize, okay, a lot of people are at the GSD for just two years. So you're either catching the conference in your first year or in your second year, and then you kind of leave. So Natasha Hicks, and then I'm forgetting another name, but they've kind of created this amazing toolkit that's, okay, how do you even put together a conference. And so they were able to like, she was, Natasha was still at school this past year and has graduated in May, but she was a great resource at like showcasing the overlap years of like, okay, this is how we ran the conference. This is how we broke it down and creating so many useful documents. I think like the long-term goal is once we kind of solidify that document is to make it accessible to other student groups that would want to do this, but it is an intense amount of work. But I think too. On the other side is like the bid, the Black and Design family, kind of people who've organized it in the past, have been amazing mentors. Have off like offered their expertise to us, <laughs> answered many late night calls where we're like, "Wait, we're not sure like how you guys were able to do this," or etc. So it's been its own community, like within the GSD, that's been really unique to have, and I'm so thankful to be working. With a group of this year, our executive board includes both students at the GSD, but also some students or non-students, sorry, that are just in Boston and that have attended the conference and wanted to be involved. Hmm. So I think opening up to having like professionals as well as students has been really interesting and awesome to see and kind of overlap. And, you know, we can share like our student perspective, but also have some professional input into the conference as well. And it's been amazing. It's been a, a lot of work, but I've, I was also able to meet so many people within the GSD who work on planning and kind of like how do you run a conference and lots of phone calls with lots of different people. And then we've also had the support of a lot of alumni who attended the GSD. So we're thankful for that, that this isn't the first conference. And so we had a lot of support going in. So it's been great.
0: Nice. Let's switch gears here again. Um, I've had a lot of people on the show who have been at various you know points of their design career. They've been professionals or captains of industry, etc. I'm really kind of interested to get more of the design student perspective because you're coming into, I think, you're coming into the design field at a time that is probably the best that it's <laughs> going to get. It'll probably get better just in terms of advances in technology. Yeah. But I mean, you have so much access through the internet through you know internet enabled devices and of course you're at harvard which is just a you know bastion mm-hmm. of higher education i'm curious as a design student what do you want to see more of from the design community
1: oh yeah no that's a good question i think hmm for me i'm really so i guess before i started graduate school i actually worked in an architecture office for a few years so that experience of working is really helpful like and now going back into school because I was it's so different than being in school and so at first I was like oh my gosh what did I do for four years in design school like I don't know anything but now I can definitely see like the important part of being a student is really this idea of like experimentation and not being afraid of failure and so I mean, that's a challenge for myself, but also I think an opportunity where people can look to other types of fields to influence design. Um, I think landscape especially is, is a very open field where people, you can kind of create your own perspective within that. And I think it can be really exciting, but it can also be very daunting and very intimidating for a lot of students. Um, and so for me, I guess I there's, I have a multiple uh, point answer. And on one hand, I would love to see more one-on-one mentorship between professionals and students. Um, Sometimes the student world feels so disconnected from the current profession. I think also too, is looking at the diversity within the field and within the school. And that's something the school has been really supportive of, but we still have a lot of progress and work to do in terms of getting more students of color within the graduate school design, but also more faculty that are more diverse. Mm. And so these are all things that kind of we're hoping the conference can help allude to and draw to. But yeah, and I think too, mentorship is really important. When you're in school, sometimes it can feel that you're alone or you're not sure what you're doing. And I think having someone to help you feel a little more confident within your work can help create a healthier work environment. Because school, I mean... I think design schools are notorious for you, you know, staying up all night just to finish your project and not getting a lot of sleep. And so a lot of unhealthy habits can start to develop within design school and design culture. But um, I think so having like positive role models and faculty that support healthier standard, healthier lifestyles has been really rewarding, but also I'd like to see more women of color within landscape and also within the field of architecture. Um, I think it's really beneficial to see someone that has, has been through it and can offer their advice. But I also think, yeah, those were also why I wanted to be involved in black and design and kind of trying to fulfill those needs.
0: So I'm curious about, uh, and this sort of falls into the realm of landscape architecture in a way. What are your thoughts on like maintaining and memorializing places and spaces that have been dedicated to the memory of like the enslavement of african-americans this is Mm -hmm. something that i've I've been thinking about honestly since the first conference there was a talk by oh i'm gonna butcher her name her name is sarah starts with last name starts with the z oh yeah sarah um and she was talking about this huge sort of like park revamp that she did (laughs) in brazil and and like how the the um i i'm trying to remember the whole thing but like basically it was built on the docking place where the slave ships came in yeah from africa and like she made sure that as she designed it that it sort of paid tribute Mm -hmm. and paid homage to that uh what what are your thoughts on like maintaining spaces like that
1: yeah i mean I think it's just so empowering. And for me, a big question that I started to ask myself was when, you know, sometimes design can err on the side of being pretentious or being a little bit too, I don't know, like maybe not involving communities that already exist or that have already occupied land. And I think especially within the African-American community and traditions, that relationship of land people is very sensitive in the sense of enslavement and also working the land but not feeling like we quite have ownership over space so I think Mm -hmm. it's really powerful that now we start to render people of color within public space and it's a new dynamic that I personally don't think exists enough and I think it could be really empowering to start to see other spaces within the built environment that kind of recognize contributions of enslaved Africans. There's an amazing project that I got that I was working on this summer in New York that was also investigating an early enslaved African burial ground in Van Cortlandt Park. And that really just kind of caught my attention because I don't really see like internships that (laughs) have titles like that at all. I was like, what in the world? Like an African burial ground. But just like he connecting with some women who were designing that and also seeing other projects. Like I believe it's the one in South Carolina and it's right on the wharf hood studio. I think. Oh hood yeah. Walter, Walter hood. hood. Yeah. Was, Walter He was hood at last and, year's
0: conference. He talked about yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And just seeing his work that, um, what is the, their museum is called. I'm going to forget the name of it, but it's kind of, I'd have to look it up. It's, um,
0: it's like, it's a, I know it's, it's dedicated to, um, I mean, it was dedicated to slavery, but it's more so dedicated to uh, the people that came in there. I think it's the the International African American Museum.
1: Yes, 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 yes. And this one is so unique because the port was one of the largest ports where a lot of Africans kind of entered into America. And so Mm
0: -hmm. his... Sullivan's Island. Yeah.
1: Yes, 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 yes. And so he's paying tribute to kind of like those larger ancestors. And I think it's really powerful the way he kind of is going to express it like within the front plaza, um, I think I saw a rendering of all these kind of bodies that were like, so they have this stone fountain out in the front and the water kind of ebbs and flows. So when it's high, it's like this reflecting pool, but when it goes lower, the bottom of the fountain is actually these like, like carved out um, bodies that are kind of resting in the water. And it's kind of like, never forget Mm. kind of like all of the, Unpaid labor, you know, and it's like, I don't know. It's just like, I can't even put it into words, but it, it like really connected with me in such a large way and kind of carving out a special place for that and paying a homage to it, I think is really important and really moving.
0: Yeah. There's a museum in, uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, <laughs> which is not far from where I'm, I'm from. I'm from Selma. Um, and I haven't been to the museum yet. I've seen pictures of it where they, uh, it's, it's the, um, the National Museum, oh, sorry, National Memorial for Peace and yeah. Justice yeah. Uh, in Montgomery. And I just, from the, all the pictures I've seen, I know there's parts where they have all of these kind of like hanging columns. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sort of like suspended from a ceiling. Um, and it's down this really long corridor and how each of the, each of the columns represents like a body or yeah. something to that effect. I'm, I'm probably getting it completely wrong, but I need <laughs> to go, I need to go see it uh, just to. Yeah to take it in. Cause again, I'm from that area, but I, I've always just been interested in how you memorialize space like that, because those can be, you know, these are yeah. sites of, of trauma often. And now you're trying to take that and turn it into something, you know, honorable and memorable.
1: Yeah. No, I've heard amazing things about the memorials. Well, I haven't been yet either, but I think, yeah, you expressed it really beautifully. Like taking a place that was a very traumatic place or a very painful history and kind of saying we still have prevailed throughout this history and paying homage to that I think it's very interesting in design and also looking at spaces and what spaces feel traumatic or like how can we create more inclusive histories that even though you know it's in the deep south where there is still a lot of hatred that exists and yet still carving out spaces that pay homage to it I think it's A big challenge but also really exciting opportunity.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. So what do you think helps like fuel the ambitions that you have? I mean, to start out in architecture, now move on to landscape architecture. Where does that drive come from?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I think for me, I felt really connected to my family and I've been really grateful to have like such a supportive family very early on my dad exposed me to education and i think for me like at the end of the day even if i'm having a bad day like my parents are like my number one supporters when i was 18 my dad actually passed away from cancer and so that was a really big life changing moment but for me i always wanted to kind of make my family proud um my mom is from a very poor neighborhood in the Bronx and kind of was able to get out of poverty. And my dad was born in Mississippi and raised on the west side of Chicago. And they both had very, very hard lives early on. But I think I'm still amazed at how much they were able to give me. And so I think for me at the end of the day, just to pass on their legacy and to try and create more equitable spaces is kind of where my drive comes from. And Having so much love that I was nourished with with, from a very young age, I realize now that can be very rare, especially within some communities of color. And so just being able to create spaces where others feel welcome, I think is really unique and really kind of like a big gap within the design field where people could reach a lot of others and create a better tomorrow for, (laughs) no pun there for the conference, but I think think that's great.
0: (laughs) Do you have a dream project that you'd love to work on one day?
1: Oh wow. Oh man. A dream project. I think for me, so I touched on briefly. I was doing started to do like this internship the summer and thinking about um doing research for an, an African burial ground. And then I was talking to my mom about it, and she was like, You need to think bigger, like way bigger. Like what could you design? And I'm like, What? <laughs> like, okay. And so <laughs> She helped me come up with this idea. Like, I would love to create, like, I know they have a lot of, like, freedom trails or, like, um, in Boston, they have, like, oh, walk the path of the Revolutionary War. But I think it'd be really amazing to see, like, a path that was dedicated to African-American history or, like, a trail where you could walk and, I don't know, discover at the end of the day. Maybe they have different kind of, like, monuments of artwork or different artists. Um I love art and a visual artist at the end of the day, but to kind of create a space where people don't necessarily have to pay to learn about their history or they don't have to go inside. I think that's maybe a possibility in landscape, but it'd be awesome to create some sort of network or trail and like a reconnection to the land for the Black community and for others to see and recognize like our contributions to this country. I don't know if that was a project description (laughs) or a title, but it'd be nice to, I don't know, create some sort of like nature trail or like connection to our history that, maybe it's called a legacy trail where people could walk and like learn about, I don't know, there's so many stories that I feel like I don't know about enslavement or where it happened and when it happened, but also learn about different cultural contributions Mm -hmm. of people of color. To the built environment, that'd be fun.
0: <laughs> what does success look like for you? Have you thought about that?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, in terms of success from grad school or like long term success.
0: I mean, any, yeah, either one. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I don't know. I think I try to think about success in different ways. Obviously, financial stability is one of those measures of like maybe success, but I think too. Another way you could look at success is maybe just being able to reach X amount of people or like, I would love to become one of the very few licensed African-American architects. Um, They're still like, what, the number's still in the 400s. And so I think at the end of the day, that's like, that would be a success to get my licensure as an architect and also be able to mentor so many younger architects and kind of increase the field in that way. But um, yeah, I think, Grad school success is just finishing grad school at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, It can feel very like a big burden at points. I mean, Harvard is a very expensive graduate school. And so, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I think just making it through those and kind of creating marks for me, Um, So graduation would be one marked measure of success. And I don't know, I'm really hoping the conference, I'm able to connect with even more people that are interested in the design field. They're maybe skeptical, like you said, like unsure about what the conference will bring and hope to create and make others feel included where they feel excluded.
0: Well, just to, you know, kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you about your work about the conference where can they find all this online
1: yeah definitely and so they can find more about this year's current conference at blackfuturism2019.xyz they can also follow us on instagram and twitter at GSD Black Futurism um, or GSD BID Conference. We'll be posting a lot of our updates on the website through social media, and we'll be talking more about speakers and building up to the conference. Um, so, yeah.
0: Nice. Sounds good. Well, Jaleen McPherson, I want to thank you just so much for coming on the show. I mean, first, I mean, thank you for sharing your story and about how you you know got to Harvard and got into landscape architecture. But also really for helping to carry the torch and continue on the Black and Design Conference. I think a lot of what we discussed just around the the importance about the equity of spaces and things of that nature. I'm really interested to see how that plays out with the theme of the conference. Like as you said about um, like no black people in the future, mm-hmm. it had me actually thinking about uh, the work of Alicia Warmly. This uh, she's this artist from Pittsburgh that does these uh, billboard installations yeah. that says. Mm-hmm there are Black people in the future or something like that. Um, I'm I'm just really, really interested to see what's going to come out of this year's conference. I just want to thank you for coming on the show and talking about it.
1: No, yeah. Thank you, Maurice. I had an excellent time. I'm so thankful that you reach out to me and so humbled to be working on this project with my team there's so many helping hands to make this year's conference possible and so we're really excited to share more about the conference um, as we get closer to that october date but thank you this was amazing
0: thoughts of love are in
1: your mind.
0: and that's it for this week big thanks to jaleen mcpherson and thanks to you for listening You can find out more about Jelene and her work through the links in the show notes at Glitch.com forward slash Revision Path. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Maurice Cherry and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you like this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about a minute or so to do, but it really, really does help spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.